stalls and carts and stuff leading to the tomb, like if you were to go to Israel right now, that there was not even paths there. And then secondly, the fact that they actually have Arab looking people in that, right? They're not like blonde haired, blue eyed in Israel. Um, By the way, my name is Eric. For those of you who are visiting, so thankful that you're here. I'm one of the pastors and we are really, really grateful to be able to celebrate Easter with you. Um, And I want to say right at the very beginning here that I recognize that the only reason we are here today is to celebrate something that we take on faith. We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that faith is the foundation for everything. But I will tell you this. Our faith does not need to be blind faith. And in fact, I believe that our God is a big enough God to be able to handle all of our questions, all of our doubts, that scripture is robust enough to be able to actually give us answers for the things that we wrestle with. And so the last couple of weeks, we've actually been asking some tough questions. Questions like, okay, God, if you really are God and you created everything, and you kind of set the stage for this, then why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't you have just forgiven everybody? What's the point of the cross at all? Or last week, we looked at Palm Sunday and, and asked the question, why were there crowds of people celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel. And then five short days later, crowds of Jews shouting, crucify him. What happened there? In what ways had they brought expectations into their relationship with Jesus that caused them to completely miss him. This morning, in just a, I have about 15 minutes, I simply want to ask a different question. Probably the most important question that we could ask, and that is, how do we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And this is foundational in everything, because if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then quite honestly, Christmas doesn't matter. And the rest of this, becomes a lot cheaper, becomes another book of of some wise teachings that Jesus brought. If you have a Bible, I I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 during my portion this morning. Um, I'm going to be quoting a couple of places out of there. You know, Paul, who was one of the apostles, he was the last apostle. He was an apostle that never actually walked with Jesus well before Jesus's resurrection. But he was one who was radically transformed by Jesus. In fact, before he was Paul, he was a guy named Saul. He was a Pharisee, very zealous for his faith, and he believed that Jesus and all of Jesus' followers were false, that the gospel that they were declaring was utter bunk. And so what he chose to do is go and persecute anybody who called themselves a Christ follower. He was, in in Scripture, we'll we'll look in Acts in a couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to begin a study through the book of Acts. But in Acts, we will see that Paul was actually the person that was presiding over the first stoning, the first martyr that was made for Christ, a guy named Stephen. It was Saul who stood there and gave his approval for it. And yet, Jesus... He encountered Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, and his entire life was transformed. And he went from being the greatest opponent of the gospel to being the, the most outspoken proponent for it. And this is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul got it. He understood that the question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead, is the central question. Everything else, the entire gospel hinges upon that question. And he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, 
Our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. Jump down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So this morning I want to ask, what are you doing back here? Not cooperating. (laughs) This morning I simply want to say, do we have any evidence for the fact that the tomb was empty? Do we have any evidence that it wasn't just empty? Because some people said, oh, wait a minute. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The tomb, the the disciples, when they showed up at a tomb, they just ran to a, a, a cave. They went to the wrong tomb. That's the reason why they said, hey, there's no risen Lord. Other people have said, no, the disciples stole the body. So there could be reasons for an empty tomb without there actually being a risen Lord. So this morning, I simply want to ask the question, is there evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? First piece of evidence, if you're keeping track, here's one of the fill-ins, is that there is a ton of embarrassing details in the gospel record. We have details such as when Jesus was arrested, his disciples scattered. They went and hid. When when Peter and John in that video that we saw, when they first heard that the tomb was empty, they, they got into a foot race to see who could get there first. And John, who was writing the account, goes, I won. Just in case you didn't know, I made it. I got there first. Peter came after me, but then he went in because he is no respecter of like holy, sacred areas. He just kind of busted right in. So then I came in after him. Even more so, they admitted that when we saw the empty tomb, we didn't know what to believe. We didn't understand it. We thought, did somebody steal his body? What's going on here? After three years of walking with Jesus during his ministry, after three years of him saying, hey, listen, this is how things are going to go. They still didn't understand. Those are the kind of details that if you're making this stuff up, you're going to omit them. You're not going to keep them in there. You're going to polish it up to make yourself look a little better. One more, really, what could have been, at least if you were writing a gospel message, trying to convince a Jewish crowd, one more bit of evidence that would be very difficult if you're trying to be persuasive. In a Jewish culture, it was very patriarchal at that time. Meaning that a man's place was in the public sphere and a woman's place was in the domestic sphere. Women were not, in a Jewish culture, allowed to be used as witnesses in a court of law. That is a cultural thing. However, who were the first witnesses to the risen Lord? Women. They were the ones who came to the tomb and there was an angel saying, Hey, listen, he's not here. Go tell Peter. Go tell John. They were the ones who said, We have seen the risen Lord. The first people to see him, the first people to talk about him were women. If you were writing a gospel where you're trying to convince Jews to believe this good news, you would not do that because they would say, Well, that's inadmissible evidence. So embarrassing details in the gospel accounts give some credibility. Now, is that all of the facts that we have to go on? Is that the whole foundation for our faith? Absolutely not. It is simply one stone that we can build our faith upon. The second bit of evidence I want to look at this morning is the, is the fact that historically speaking, the tomb was empty. Do you remember after the disciples saw Jesus risen from the dead, they began to go out and proclaim the good news that Jesus rose and that on the day of Pentecost was the first day they began to publicly proclaim this good news. Do you remember where that was? What city that happened in? This is the interactive portion. <laughs> it was in Jerusalem. Okay, so for those of you who didn't know, come back as we study the book of Acts. We're going to go over all of that, okay? Come back next week. It was in Jerusalem. Some 
two months after Jesus was crucified, in the same city where Jesus was killed, they began to go out and proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. But if he didn't rise from the dead, if they had accidentally gone to the wrong tomb, then all the Roman authorities have to do is produce a body. Right? Can we, can we get that quote up there for just a moment? Here's a, a theologian, Paul Alpha, said this. The resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, even a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. That we know it's not just the disciples who are saying the tomb was empty. We know it from Matthew chapter 28 that there were actually Jews who began to spread the rumor. The tomb is empty, sure, because the disciples stole the body as if they could have overpowered Roman centurions who were tasked with guarding that tomb. But no, the disciples stole the body. That's why it's empty. Furthermore, there's even extra biblical evidence. The Jewish historian Josephus is actually recorded as saying that the tomb was empty. And this is what we call positive evidence from a, uh, what is the, the actual term? Positive evidence from a hostile source. The, so the fact, it would be tantamount to a Republican politician looking across the aisle at a Democratic uh, person and saying, you know what, I don't agree with most of their platform, but on this, I agree. They're right on that. Can you see that if... if if somebody who is hostile to the other person is agreeing with something, then it's probably a pretty good fact that it is fact. So in this sense, we have a lot of evidence that the tomb itself was empty. Well, okay, but what if it was empty because disciples stole the body and all that? The third piece of evidence that we have is the fact that there were a ton of eyewitnesses. Go with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hopefully you're still there. There were a ton of of eyewitnesses. Paul, again, as we're reading this, writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. What I received, I now pass on to you as of first importance. First, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to those scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another way of saying Peter, and to the disciples, to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. If you were going to make up a story about Jesus being risen from the dead and that there are eyewitnesses, you would do one of two things. One, you keep that number of people, those number of eyewitnesses, very, very small. Because the more you get, the more chance there is for somebody to speak, right? Somebody to go, oh, we made it up, you know. We just really thought that it would help us with the ladies if, you know, we knew Jesus and he was the Lord or whatever, you know. So if you're going to make it up, keep the number of people small or wait until a lot of those eyewitnesses can no longer be questioned. Right? Wait until a lot of them die. And yet we read here that after Jesus revealed himself to Peter and to the disciples, then more than 500 men and women saw him, many of whom are still alive today. So they could easily have been cross-examined in that. Of course, somebody would argue, well, okay, great. There are a bunch of people who are in the know. There are a bunch of people who are saying that this is what happened because they're Christ followers. Of course they're going to say that. We can't take their word. Well, I would remind you that the guy Paul, who's writing this, was not a Christ follower at the time when Jesus was raised from the dead. He was an opponent of the gospel who became a proponent. Furthermore, 
I would point to what I would consider to be the single greatest bit of evidence that we have, even more so than the embarrassing details, more important than the fact that the tomb is historically proven to have been emptied, more important even than the number of eyewitnesses that claim to have seen him, is the way that those people who claim to have seen him were transformed. Because you might argue, well, wait, They were doing this for selfish purposes. They were spreading this rumor that Jesus rose from the dead for their own gain. Really? Because every time I read in Scripture that this person was following him, they they found trouble because of their outspoken willingness to declare that Jesus was risen from the dead. They endured persecution. They endured ostracization from their people and their families. They endured stonings. They endured uh, being thrown to lions. They endured crucifixions and killings. Of the 12 disciples, only one of them survived into old age. Only one of them died a natural death. And that was John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And even he was exiled onto an island because he would not shut up about his being convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. I'll tell you this. There are a couple of things in this world that I would die for. Kathy and my sons. And then hopefully, my faith. Beyond that, probably not. But each and every one of these disciples was willing to die for the claim that Jesus was the risen Lord. That he was who the scriptures claimed him to be and that he did what the scriptures claimed him to do. If they made up a lie, man, they were way more convinced of it than we are. And so those are some of the pieces of evidence. Although, again, at the end of the day, our relationship with God is founded on faith, I believe that there is a ton of evidence to support our faith. It's not blind faith. And the most powerful evidence that we have is the transformed lives of those who are following Jesus, those who saw him. Because they went from people who ran when Jesus was first arrested, they went from people cowering in an upper room to being people who went out and proclaimed, we have seen the risen Lord. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our lives. And many of them them were willing to lay down their life. But they're not the only ones whose lives have been transformed. Because Jesus continues to transform lives today. I'm going to invite Lee to come up. He's going to share a little bit about some of the other ways that God continues to transform lives. Look at that verse you have on the bottom. It says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great is this power to help those who believe him. The same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. We can talk about the historical evidence for Jesus. We can break down all these wonderful pictures and begin to do great videos and say, oh, look at this, look at that. How does this affect us? But the reality is this. If it doesn't change your life, it doesn't mean anything. If he doesn't give us the power to transform us into people that are different than who we were before, then it doesn't mean anything. It's just another religious group that are gathered together to do good things and you do the best you can and then you die. The key ingredient in relationship to the resurrection is the power of God to raise our lives from death into life. This last week we saw horrendous evil taking place 
as people were willing to blow themselves up just so they could kill some 20 to 30 other people that were around them. And they did this in the name of, of a God. And we were appalled. Secretary of State said, we now have to recognize that ISIS is actually committing genocide against Christians. Thousands of Christians are being beheaded on a weekly basis in Syria. Thousands. Why would God allow this evil to continue? Because he desperately wants every person here to understand the power of God in their life personally. To give you the choice to follow or not. To receive the power of God to provide forgiveness in your life or to reject it and continue to live in this life that is meaningless at best. I pray you'll begin to understand, is how Paul puts it. I wish you could understand how great this power is. The power to overcome the pain of our past. And some of us have some horrible past situations. It's power to, to deal with today. With my issues that will take place after I leave here. Oh, we're great while we're here, folks. It's all good. Then we leave here and you look at your husband and you say, you know, you really are a jerk. Or to your wife, you say, I am so... And you can fill in the blank. And we're like, what's going on? It was so good at church and I was feeling so good and we responded so well. We, and we hugged each other. It was like this sense of relief. And, and now what happened? Where, where's the power? And I said, the power is right there. But you must allow Jesus to be the center if you're going to experience the wonder of who he is. He wants to heal your past. He wants his power to deal with your past. You see, we're all holding on to these different hurts in our life and our past. They're like, they're like rocks of resentment and, and rocks of regret. They're, they're the if only this, if only I had or if only I hadn't. If only I won the lottery, then I'd be a good person. Liar. But, but if, if this hadn't taken place in my life, if they hadn't done this stuff to me, then I, I'd be a good person. Liar. Sorry. That's not what caused you to become and to react. Uh, a friend of Chris's who was, who was killed this week in a gym. That's our youth pastor. And he was just devastated. He was crying. saying, why is this happening? He was such a good man. And this, this evil person comes in and shoots and kills him. Well, the funny thing is, the guy wasn't all that evil. Bob knew the guy. He said, I know him. He, he, I, just, I just sparred with him. He wasn't a, that bad of a guy. He was a little bit disjointed, but I never thought. Boy, I never thought. That's the problem, you see, is that if we don't have the power of God in our life to heal our past, we will bring forth evil in our present that will bring destruction to everyone around us. We are just walking, talking, broken people. That at any time can go off and bring destruction and hate into lives. But God wants to heal your past. That's the cry of Easter. It's Jesus saying, I want to take care of those rocks of regret. I want to take care of this issue and this struggle. He says, don't continue to dwell on your past. Let it go. I want to change you from the inside out. Forget about what's happened. Don't think about the past. Look at this new thing that I'm going to do in your life. 
Give up your grudges. Give up your anger. Some of you are saying, but Pastor Lee, you don't understand. I can't do that. Really? You're absolutely correct. You can't. It's impossible. It's humanly impossible. The only way you're going to be able to deal with your past is if Jesus deals with it for you. It's the only way. And if you allow him to, you'll experience this wonderful release. And he will cleanse you like water pouring over your soul. And you'll find yourself going, I don't hate them anymore. I, I, I'm not angry anymore. What's going on? It's, it's gone. What's happening? And you'll find yourself praying for these very people that hurt you. And you'll find yourself thinking of how awful it must be to be in that body and have that kind of hate. And you'll pray that God will release them as he's released you. And you'll go, what happened to me? What happened? It's like being born again. It's exactly what it's like because you began to respond to the power of Jesus to heal your past. See, you're never going to get free of the past until you allow God to deal with the present. People ask me, where's God when I hurt? Right next to you. Grabbing a hold of your hand, trying to get your attention. And you're going, no, don't touch me. Get away. I want to hurt. God's saying, it's, it's a, let me hurt with you. That's the cry of Jesus on the cross. He's saying, let me hurt with you. Let me cleanse you from this pain. Let me remove the pain of your past. Let me bring you into the present, to the new things that I have for you in your life. You see, we're caught up in these places and the rocks, this if only, the what ifs. All these issues of regret and resentment, and we think we're stuck there. We think we have a life sentence here. Let me tell you, you don't. Jesus wants to release you from that prison, but you've got to let him. You've got to let him. And that's what the cry of Easter is. It's God saying, hey, let me set you free. I've got the key. I've got the power. I've defeated sin It no longer has to be your master. That's the cry of Easter. He understands our struggle. He understands our lack of power. He's right on top of it. And some of you say, well, well, Pastor, it's easy for you to say your life was always a good one. Yeah, your life was easy. You grew up in the Christian home with the Christian parents and all the good stuff. And yeah, I got you. And you can't you can't say that. Well, folks, you can't say that about me. Some of you know me. And you go, ooh, <laughs> I grew up in an abusive home. I grew up with a father who used to beat, the, beat me up. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was just, he was an angry alcoholic. I remember at 2 a.m. in the morning, he grabbed and pulled me out of bed. And, and I go, what the? And I'm just shaking up. The things my dad did were so bad. He was just such a mixed up, messed up man. When I was 14, worst memory of my life, 14 years old, my dad is chasing my mom with a knife in his hand. And he's grabbing her by the throat. It just so happened I had my shotgun handy. So I pulled out my shotgun and ran in there and said, you drop that now. He looked at me like, what the? 
And then my sister just ran across the street and brought up a neighbor. He comes running and goes, Jay? And he drops the knife. And my life spiraled into drugs and disaster, disgusting things. Found myself in the service, not because of a patriotic sense, because the judge said you can either go to jail or you can go in the army. I felt patriotic for a moment, said. <laughs> Here I go. So I went in the army. And I got there and I was doing pretty good. And then I got back into drugs. I began dealing drugs at Plakas, a little place in Würzburg, Germany. And in the process, a young lady came from Campus Crusade and she shared with me, Jesus can deal with the pain of your past. And I said, Really? Said, yeah. I said, could we talk about that later? Maybe over a drink? She smiled. Good shot. Good try, buddy. She said, no, I want to walk you through this. And she walked me through the four spiritual laws and shared with me how not only could he deal with the pain of my past, but he wanted to deal with my present situation. That he had the power to help me get on with life instead of continue to struggle in this place that I was in at that point in time. You see, he had the power to deflate the pressures of today, not just the issues and the struggles of yesterday. And I kind of chuckled and I let her read all the way through it. And I didn't realize the Holy Spirit was starting to work in me. And about six months later, I gave my life to Christ and everything turned around. And God began to deal with the pressures of today because you start with your past, folks. You can't move to the present unless you start with your past. I could have Rourke stand up and he'd go, I had to deal with the issues of my past. I was such messed up, so struggling. And God dealt with that. Now he's begun to change me. And you'll hear his testimony later, not today, but later. God desires to change you and he wants to deal with your issues of today. Today is difficult. We can talk about ISIS and the situation that's taking place in, in other areas. But the day issues that we have are hard. They're hard. And God says, I can help you deal with it. I can give you dimensions to deal with this thing. I can help you understand what's taking place. I can bring strength and stability into your life so you can get through each day, but not just get through it. But at the end of it, you can go, thank you, God. What a wonder it is to be part of your kingdom. Be part of who you are. And he can grant us this, this wonderful, glorious thing that he's kind of put into place. Every time you write a check, you know, you write a check to declare the reality of Christ. You realize that? You look at the year and you put down the date. And the date you're putting down is the day of our Lord. It's A.D. Or you think back, maybe B.C., if we want to go back in history, because all of history is divided into B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after him. Anno Domini, the day of our Lord, the, the beginning, the birth, the reality, and the resurrection declares the wonder and the glory of God to everybody, whether they want to admit it or not. And he says, I can deal with your issues of today. Over two billion people celebrate Easter today. But here's our issue. You see, in Orange County, what we do is, we try to fill ourselves up with something other than, than the power of God in us. And we fill us up with these different, you know, things. I, I'll, I'll use this rock picture here. And I go, you know, I really think I need more money. And I, and I try to fill up with that, and it kind of rattles around my life. And I get more money. It's like, ah, that's not. I, well, maybe I just need more things. So I start rattling around with that. I say, oh, no, I, I'll, I'll have kids. Now, we know that was a mistake. Okay, yeah.
I'll change my looks. I'll do liposuction, augmentation, nose rhinoplasty. I'll, I'll look really good. Okay? And we put all that stuff in there. And we start to live life. And that's what happens. Because we've got a broken heart. And no matter what you try to fill it with, it won't work. You see, your issue is simple. You need a new heart. If you want to deal with today, you need a new heart. And God can give it to you if you want Him. If you're willing. But that's the cry. Jesus came into my life. He changed everything. He showed me how to deal with everyday issues with struggles in relationship. And he said, this is how you need to respond to that. And I go, really? Yes. This is how you need to deal with your relationships with your wife. This is how you need to deal with your struggles with your kids. This is how you need to deal with all these things. And if you'll build your life on the rock that I'll give you this truth, I'll set you free. And so I said, well, what have I got to lose? And I began to live in that way. And I said, if Jesus said that's what I'm supposed to do, then that's what I'm going to do. No more lying. No more cheating. No more stealing. No. Enough. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Love your wife. Care for her. Serve her. Recognize her as the most important person in your life that I put into there. Care for your kids. Recognize how they are called to be brought up. And follow, direct, listen to what the Holy Spirit says as He guides and directs you. You humble yourself and follow the truth that He's having. Haven't you tried enough other stuff? Some of you here are going, well, you know, I'm, I'm too old to change now. Folks, the best time to change was 20 years ago. Okay? I'm sorry. That's when it was. But you know what the next best time is? Right now. Right When you do that, God sets you free from the fear of your future. Your fear of retirement. Those of you who are getting a little older like I am. Oh, Lord, how am I going to get this? Am I going to have enough money to make it through? Hopefully I'll die young. It's terrible. I tell my wife that. She said, you're leaving me behind. I said, that's right. I'm supposed to love her. I'm supposed to take care of her. You know, okay. I got to talk to Peter over here. He helped me with my finances towards retirement. Come on, you know, Lee, you can do this. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Fears of the future. I'm not afraid of the future. My biggest problem with retirement is I don't, I'm not afraid of the future. I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to be neat what God does. God's saying, Lee, start saving your money. I'm going, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do. Yes, appropriately. Set this aside appropriately. Okay, Lord. Follow the truth that he's laid down. He says, Lee, you are so valuable to me. There's a future for you. There's a hope. It's powerful. You can taste it. You're going to die one day and your kid's going to be around and you're going to go, yes, my life was good. And he says, you are so valuable. I got a $20 bill here. Some of you are thinking you're not very valuable because you've kind of been crumbled up and you've been, you know, beat up and... Yeah, you've been stomped on. It's like, oh, you guys aren't worth anything anymore. and Nobody wants those anymore, right? Anybody need $20? <laughs> Anybody? 
Anybody else need any? Oh, there you go. She just went to Europe. She needs $20. (laughs) I go, hey, you know the marvelous thing about that? You can stomp on it. You You can tear it. You can do all kinds of stuff to it. It's still worth $20. It's still valuable. And God looked at you and said, you're far more valuable than any $20 bill. You are so incredibly valuable to God that he was willing to allow his son to die to give you the power to live life. To erase your past and let you begin to focus on your future. I don't care if you're 25 or 75. God is saying, come on. Quit messing around. Quit putting rocks in a broken heart. And allow me to give you a brand new heart that you might experience what it means to be born again. Get over the past. Enjoy the new. Because we know that God cares about Fun show, Ten Commandments. Yeah, I don't know how many of you have seen that. I watched the other day. Yul Brenner, you know, bald-headed guy. Old guy. Yeah. He's dead. Anyway. <laughs> he, he's, doing, he's doing his Pharaoh thing, right? And in and, 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 and the Pharaoh thing, it's, you know, so shall it be written, so shall it be done. Isn't that great? I like that. So shall it be written, so shall it be done. I always wanted to say that where it actually means something. I turn to my kids and I say, so shall it be written, so shall it be done. And they go, oh, get over yourself, Dad. What happened to the power? I go, hold, hold, what's going on here? And, and then, so this is Pharaoh and God saying, oh, dude, you're in big trouble. He brings ten plagues all the way through him. And each plague is representative of a different God. That God is making fun of his so-called gods of Egypt. And one of the gods, you mean the frog god. They had a frog god. I'm going, are you kidding me? Hey, they had a lice god. Why not a frog god? I guess the frog would eat the lice. I don't know. But anyway, so they got the frog god. And so God has made it so there's frogs everywhere in the kingdom. There's frogs in Mrs. Pharaoh's bed. They're all over there. She turned to Pharaoh and said, get rid of the frogs. Moses comes up and he says, okay, God can take care of this problem. Get rid of all the frogs. When do you want me to do it? And you know what Pharaoh says? Do you remember? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Are you kidding me? He went back into the bedroom and his wife right in the face. Tomorrow. Procrastination's killing you guys here. You're all doing the same thing. You're saying, well, I want to give my life to God. Tomorrow. Well, I'm going to change everything. Tomorrow, And God is saying, how about right now? Close your eyes. Bow your head. Father, right now, we admit that we have a struggle with our past and sin in our life. And we have these rocks of regret and resentment. And they are destroying us. And we ask that you'll take them away. Lord, we admit our need. And we come before you as the only one that can change it and say, Lord Jesus, change us. Transform us. We believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for us, that we can be forgiven by simply saying, Lord, forgive me. And you do it miraculously. Today we come before you and we choose. Today we choose you as Lord. We will follow your truth because we want to be transformed. We want to experience truth and life that's got peace in it. Lord Jesus, today, 
today. That's the time we asked that you'll bring the change about in our life. Oh, Lord. I know I haven't realized how much you want to move in my life. And I ask now that you'll make it clear. Let me let go of the past. Let me grab a hold of your hands and walk with you every day. And experience the wonder of freedom to look to the future without fear. If I die today, it's okay. I'm okay with that. Thank you, Lord. I'm not afraid anymore. And that's what we ask, Lord. Take away our fear, our pessimism. Replace it with your power and your presence. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's Easter. Yeah! Woohoo! We're going to close up this service. I'm going to ask the blessing on you. Will you all stand for me? Father, you see these people standing and you know what they desire, what they need in their life. And I ask that you'll give it to them. What they really need. Whatever that is, Lord, provide it this week. Provide it this week. Do what only you can do. This miracle of Easter. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. The band's going to play as we leave. Enjoy it.